Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. But this little dink ball, no one in a crowded area where it's a fist pass, the weight is taken over, hits the ground, and it bounces into a fella's chest. Why do you not do many interviews? Oh, really? Yeah, what have you been asked to do, hopefully? Really? Yeah. Have you ever rang me? And they're roaring at me, I cover you, a free state bastard. <laughs> and next thing I hear, you have no fucking jurisdiction up here. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so welcome along to the best of 2021 on the GER. Hope you had all had a lovely Christmas and you're looking forward to the new year. So today is officially my very last show. I've done this too many times now. I think, think people are saying, when the hell is he going to get off this show? Uh, so this is officially my last show. So again, I want to thank all the listeners, um, obviously, for making the show um, as enjoyable as it was. I want to thank all the pundits for contributing down through the years. There's been loads of them. I think Damien Hayes is probably the only one that lasted from show one on the hurling show right up for the five and a half years. But there was a lot um, who were long term and some just came in and out. So thanks very much to them. Especially want to thank you two lads, not just because you're in front of me now, but um, in the club season this year, we said, let's give these two young, uh, promising young journalists a chance on the GAR this year. And uh, I have to say, Lee, you had some broadcasting experience. Now, you didn't have any other than the couple of videos you did on Joe, but you've been fantastic. And you've had great, uh, you know, bit of knowledge and passion for the club season, which is very important to me because we know what we're like on the club season um, on this show. So thanks very much to the two of you um, for, all, for all your help. Um, let's get in to the best of though. So Paul Ryan retired in February this year. Um, we spoke to him on the show. Paul's a great character. Um, he enjoyed telling stories more than anything else. So here he is talking to us about Anthony Daly's unique uh, style of punishments. Yeah, I remember like back in the day when we arrived, we, I think it was the first Portugal trip, and I'll leave the boy nameless, but uh, this is just a testament to Dale's man management and how he went about things, um, because lads would be dropped these days for this carry-on. Uh, but two of the boys now, and, two, and there were two like instrumental characters within the team, just unbelievable crack. Lads loved being around them, and that's very important in the team. But didn't the two of them 
but, and this is kind of the attitude back in the day with Dublin Hurling that Dalo was constantly trying to change and, and he did he succeeded in it but in the early days we went to, we arrived at the airport and the whole team was there and two of the lads got some coppers the night before turned up pissed and we were all trying to hide them away from the from Dalo and Richie and Hedge on the bus <laughs> and sure didn't Dalo spot them anyway and like I'd say he was, he was planning on sending them home but then he said oh geez, look I'll just let them go I won't make a big deal of it he's probably thinking of what to do on the plane on the way over and we were all thinking alright the lads are getting caught anyway they're getting sent home now what he decided to do is he got in a, he got himself and Martin Kennedy jumped in a golf cart because there was a golf course on, on, on the uh, place we were staying and ran the minute they got off the plane he, he made them run for about two or three hours in the <laughs> eastern heat <laughs> and while doing it while videoing it and then he, he said right that's your punishment they had to apologise to the group sure we were all laughing and everything at that, at that stage and at the end he got the video analysis uh, girl that was with us at that time she edited the whole thing and <laughs> And played it at the end of the camp. Well, it was, it was possibly the funniest video. It was just Dalo was abusing them, while videoing them, and they were abusing Dalo. <laughs> <laughs> but like, just it was unreal. Like, you know, you wouldn't get away from these days. But stuff like that, then you know, as reacted to that, that two boys probably thought they were gone. You know, and yeah. He kept them around, and sure, the amount you get out of lads after that, you know. I have to say, Niall, that Delo seem to have kind of the Midas touch when it comes to that because, like, I mean, lads step out of line. You know, this is in 2011, 12, 13, over that era. This is when it got a little bit cutthroat and you're drinking and you're acting to your maggot. I've been thrown off panels 10 years previously for that. He rather run the shite out of them, sit on the back of a golf cart, video them and then play the video to the whole panel. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Like, it's... It's the kind of thing you'd like when you see a manager and he has a chance to kind of get ready and a chance to, you know, really put you in a, in a bad place. Like, and he kind of, he lets you off. Like, that's the kind of manager that you play for really at the end of the day, isn't it? And that image of Dalo on the golf cart kind of giving the boys a bit of a bollocking as they're running. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> I'd say the boys didn't like it at the time, but looking back on it, I'd say they'd, they'd laugh at it. Like, Yeah, and they're abusing Dalo and Dalo's slagging <laughs> them as they're running in the heat with a hangover. Like, it doesn't get any any better than that. But look, we know what Dalo's like. He's a great character. So we did a good few tribute shows during the lockdown. Did JJ Delaney, uh, Brian Corcoran, Owen Kelly, Peter Canavan, Declan Brown, Trevor Giles. So loads of good stuff to search back on um, if, you want, if you haven't listened to them all. Um, my all-time favourite uh, has to be the one we did with Pat Critchley. And I have to say, when I announced I was leaving the show, I got lots of direct messages on Twitter telling me that this was their favourite show. So go back and have a listen to it. Um, Cheddar Plunkett was a guest on it. Cheddar and Pat were great friends growing up. Um, they're from the st- same estate in Port Leash. And this clip, Pat and Cheddar talk about their, their band, The Mere Mortals, and touring the country in a little van. Uh, the Pogues were, were, were headlining down in Fela 90. We got, we got the backstage passes. We had a brilliant weekend. And uh, but at one stage... Uh, Shane was taken into a bottle of vodka in the tent, like, and uh, Paul Marin was our, our lead singer. Um, he went, I went to college with him, but I, I, I had, uh, I, I had lost uh, most of my teeth from from the hurling from a, a, an injury against Tip, like, at, uh, and uh, what's his Ali says, uh, Jesus, he says, there's, there's my going over there, and I'm hooking toot in his head, and he never been home. <laughs> 
mere mortals and and uh, and in between i, th- I think we, we were the um the, we, we had a few other other names in between like we used to go down to the rose of Tralee there and play down there uh we actually w- would 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 uh we, we would say that we played in the pint depot but um it was actually charlie's bar at the front of the t- pint depot as where we got the gig like and and we always needed a big stage for kind of lepping around the place but uh uh, Cheddar and the lads went out and they got um, uh, the car park signs or plywood like and built out the stage but at one stage myself and Paul Marn were, were jumping up and down to the, the chorus um, to, so the, the, the plywood was rotten like we, we went straight through it like and once we knew where we were going we made a meet, we, we disappeared all together like and the boys kept playing and then we jumped up for the chorus you know like because uh, the crowd went mad then we came, came back up for the chorus and this dub like saying that uh, Chairs, the boys are your man's a jewel, you know, and then he, he wanted you should sue them, sue them for the for the for, for the stage, like you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember, um, yeah, it was good, brilliant crack. Like Ch- Cheddar had to put up with a lot, like those those years. I tell you, trying to trying to manage that. It, it, did you ever sack any of them, Cheddar? Um, no, there was a, a couple of meetings had, or a couple of meetings had at different times. Um, I know there was it was it was absolutely savage crack. And at the time, we were all you know the hurling side of the band were sort we were sort of finishing up a little bit in the hurling. Um, um, so you could do these things in you know in the off season. But just look on the, on the serious note, I don't know where the band were playing one. I think it might have been in the Bagot Inn. They used to play a lot in the Bagot Inn, which was a great live venue in Dublin at the time. And I think it was there that Maddie Fox saw the band. Maddie Fox obviously was manager of Christy Moore at the time for, for a good number of years and would have managed a number of bands and that and, and became very interested in the band actually it got pretty serious at one stage you know the band would have produced I suppose a number of albums and singles and videos and TV shows and what have you uh, quite at the same time you know having, having a great great time but um, I suppose everybody was working like so you just couldn't commit to a full time but but it got it got serious around that stage actually until uh, we saw a little bit more sense and pulled back um, but yeah, God, it was it was just fantastic fun and fantastic crack. Um, well, I say it was for the boys. For me, it was a little bit different because we could be playing in Galway, we could be playing in Limerick or something like that. And you know, you'd be by the time you have your stuff packed away and in the and in the van, you might be leaving there at three or four o'clock in the morning. And of course, the minute you'd leave Galway, is all you'd hear is snores. Um, and you'd have to be into work then again the following morning. You might get home, get the breakfast, go straight into work. And and uh, ah, but look, it was it was. It was brilliant. There were a great uh, bunch of, you know, great, great lads, all great friends that were really interested in enjoying life. And I'd say Pat was the most creative on that side is all I'll say. <laughs> they just don't make them like they used to, Lee. Like, I mean, you're talking about, you know, inter-county hurlers packing themselves into a van, getting home so late that they're basically just going straight into work the next day, you know, playing hurling. And at one, one point I always made, or I made to Cheddar and Pat was, I don't know what it was like growing up for you, but, you know, for the, the the footballers usually just played football. Then you'd have lads that were into bands and they'd be in another group. There wasn't much of a crossover between the two. So it's it's, it's an unusual kind of thing, I suppose, for them, for that big group of friends to be interested in all of it, in both of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, well, any, anyone who's learned how to play an instrument, they'll know, like, the errors that go into that and how difficult it is. And anyone who's played football and hurling, like, at a really high level, you know, 
the same amount of discipline and, and hours and hours go into the practice and stuff. So, you know, to have two people there like, who are so passionate and capable, uh, both of them, and to mix the two of them so well and not let it upset one or the other. And then, yeah, I take your point, because like, when you were in school, it was it was very much you know the sporty people all hung out with the sporty people it was sort of like clicks nearly but um you just get uh people who can break down barriers and walls and it always takes special characters and you had two of them there yeah and they played at the fela in turles now you're probably too young for this but i, w- I think i was at the last fela 1994 um down in turles so i don't know what age you were back in 1994 i think Ray- Ray- minus Ray- three <laughs> You weren't even born. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And uh, Rage Against the Machine were headlining it that year. So like the Fela was basically the electric picnic of the 90s. It was massive. And the boys played at it. You know, like, I mean, so they were almost kind of half breaking a big at the time, which was interesting. Yeah, well, the first time I heard about that was actually reading Pat Critchley's book. And it was called Hungry Hill. Yeah. I think that was what they called the estate he yeah. lived on in Port Leash. But because I met Pat Critchley, we did a video with him for Carlo IT when they got to the Sigerson final last year. And... Just of all the people you'd meet kind of do, doing interviews and stuff like that, he's nearly the most memorable. Just like, uh, I'm not sure what age he is, but showing up in the Air Max shoes that day, the Nike Air Maxes and a pair of trackies on him. And he gave me the book then after and just a pure legend of a man. And listening to that clip there, when Cheddar, what did he say? He said, um, there was a lot of lads in that band. They were they were they were all good lads enjoying li- enjoying the life but none of them was as creative as pat as that at that and that's all i'll say yeah <laughs> so that was a great line like <laughs> and himself and cheddar like what a duo they are really like you know yeah no fantastic stuff um so if anyone wants to listen back to that just search pat critchley and the gr um and you'll get that it's definitely worth it um paddy mcbrearty so we know paddy mcbrearty scored probably arguably the point of the season uh this year when you factor in the level of importance um, you know, the brilliance of it, the man that was marketing, which was Chrissy McCaig, all those things. And obviously against a manager who had managed him before in Rory Gallagher, who was pretty much standing not too far away from him watching this sail over the bar. It was the last kick of the game, which won an absolute classic. It was his trademark loop uh, score, which Chrissy had figured out for most of the game, but not all of it. So Paddy joined us on the show not too long after that. And I quizzed him about his loop move. So when did you bring this loop? Yourself and Dean Rock, we always say on the show here, the best at the loop. Like, I mean, the point against Derry was just pure Paddy McBrearty. Like, I mean, when did you start developing this? When I lost a yard or two of pace there (laughs) three years ago. No, it was just, it just started off in training. Hey, um, Jamie, Jamie does it a lot too. Jamie Brennan does a lot with Donegal too. Does he? Um, It is hard. Yeah, he does. Yeah, Jamie, Jamie's actually really good at it. Um, No, it's just something... Just we just saw a pattern working, you know, get get lads into your uh, different positions, and um, you know the ball carry then actually is kind of a shield to yeah between your man and or the mar- man marker and the man receiving the ball. So it's been effective, you know. Teams teams can shut it down too. Um, Derry were really good against against us this year. They had a really well set up, but um, yeah, team it probably is a wee predi- bit predictable at times, but. Uh, it's about getting the getting the mixture right. So, the, so what's the mixture for young people, young footballers listening? What's the mixture? Is is the timing of it and the the player that gives you the pass trying to block your man? Is that the, is that the secret? I don't want to give away too much because <laughs> uh, <laughs> this could be taken up in video analysis sessions again. But yeah, the, <laughs> the ball carrier is the ball carrier is important to the whole thing. He can uh, he can get in the way of 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 you receiving the ball and the the, the the man marking you know and he can kind of ask act, act as a kind of a shield which would be termed a term in basketball um 
where you can see in basketball where a three-point shooter might get free because a man is, sh- is uh, shielding, shielding his marker. So, yeah, it's, it's about about not going too early out into that position, um, delaying it a wee bit. And, uh, yeah, the ball carrier is probably very, very important in the whole thing. You're almost acting like you're out of the play altogether. You're disinterested in it until that, that second arrives. Uh, yeah, yeah, true. Um, you've been studying well. Really. <laughs> nice to see Paddy, um, you know, admitting a little bit of what he does. To be honest with you, like, I mean, Lee, we all know what he does. Like, I mean, I don't think he's giving away trade secrets. It's just Chrissy McCaig knew that day what he does. It's just keeping your concentration for that long to stop him every time he does it. And you have to, you know, the game is unfolding and all these things are happening. And Paddy's walking around like he doesn't care who has the ball until that split second he wants to make his move. And then it's too late for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the concentration levels needed to stop that is insane. Uh, Chrissy, because, you know, had, had him sussed out for the better part of 70 minutes. Like, that was that was the last kick of the game, I think, you know, 73rd, 74th. Oh, no, Derry had the ball for a little while and they couldn't uh, replicate something. But uh, he maybe did give something away, though, because uh, they played Tyrone, I think, a couple of weeks later. And Conor McKenna came bursting through the middle and did a little pass or slip pass to Dar McCurry, who was on the loop and then kicked it over the bar. So yeah. who knows? They maybe had this video playing in the changing room. <laughs> well, like, I mean, they, they, they could have a lot of players do the loop. I think Dean Rock and Paddy are the best of them. Is this something that could take off in hurling, right? So you've got a half forward and a solo and down the field, right? So like it should actually, in theory, be well able to be done in hurling. So the corner forward standing in corner forward. He's completely disinterested. He's just walking around. And then... Just when that split second comes, he just sprints towards his man, takes a hand pass on the loop and it's flicked over the bar. Yeah, it is. The way lads are able to strike now, they're able to score from yeah. anywhere. Like the way Patrick Horgan nearly does a loop on, on his own. Like he doesn't need anyone else to he help him. He runs out like, and then yeah. loops. Yeah. So it's, it is like his lads are able to score from anywhere these days. Like so it is the type of score kind of on the back foot and over the shoulder that they'd be able to score and you could see it coming into it. Especially with the running game, say like that Wexford use and they only maybe play two men inside. Like, and they're running the ball a lot, D. O'Keefe, and they're all, say, running down the wing. Somebody else run towards him and back out around him. D turns around and it's over the bar. Like, I mean, it mm-hmm. could be some, because Wexford borrowed a lot of kind of football, um, you know, uh, tactics with that running game and stuff. But maybe the loop move at the end of it is something that, told you, football coaches should be brought into every hurling team. Dara Egan, I hope he's listening now. You're nearly <laughs> Wexford set up here. For next year, but when you think about, it, you haven't really seen it too often a point scored like that in hurling. Not right? in hurling. No, it's it's and not a common yeah, thing. It's just come to my head there now. Yeah. There you go. Listen, I'm available for one on ones <laughs> and team uh, sessions. I'm not cheap. It has to be said. Um, all right, I spoke to Bernard Flynn on the show this year. So Bernard Flynn was on his Lake Regale, and we talked to him. Um, I think we talked to him that that day before the the show. Uh, his show aired he was in great form again a bit like Paul Ryan he wanted to tell stories here he is talking about the time he burst his best friend Dave Sinnott he was cornerback for Dublin in a Leinster final as their two wives were sitting in the stand together you know watching on uh, horrified I'm going to tell a story that, it, that was left out that it, it's fucking brilliant this is some story but when, you, when the people see tonight the story we're working together we work together every day we're great mates and they in the previous Leicester final, I had a good match and a free match in the play, but they put Dave left half back to cornerback with his pace. And that threw me out because I'd lunch and coffee and dinner with Dave during the week. We never spoke much about football. And uh, but that's, that's a, they sprung that on Dave and myself. I didn't know it. Right. But he, he's clean and he was fast, but he started hitting me fist into the, into the gut. 
and I had words with him and another ball I went for it but anyway I turned back and I opened him I split him badly and uh, we were to meet we're, the two guys were sitting in the stand together sitting we all we made a pact we'd meet afterwards meet the 50 publicans a big uh, sort of meet and greet for tenants who were both reps with, with our, uh, Michael Gilroy and Tony Haddon who was the, uh, played it down in the 60s the great Tony Haddon they were our two bosses and I came out after the match they were sent off Bree was crying Met her, she gave me a bollocking, and rightly so, probably. But I didn't care, we won the last final, so I had the medal. And uh, I went up for the eating turn up, never turned up to the meet and greet. And I waited around the told Sean Boyle, and I had to stay on. And I found him around 12 o'clock that night. And uh, I rolled off my car that night, and it says on the program um, about two or three in the morning with Dave. And I had to do a promotion in Gibney's Malahide on the bank holiday Monday the next day. And who drove me and helped me the next day? Only Dave Sinnott. What a man. Jesus. He busted in the centre. So I rode off my car. But the best one was the number one later at my stag. Himself and Charlie Redmond came to my stag. And they came to my stag and left. They were, they were only home. It, Dave was only home for his honeymoon that evening. And Marie says, listen, stay out till 12 or 1. At 5 o'clock in the morning, there was no mobiles. But we were late drinking somewhere after a nightclub. Word came back to me through a guard. David smashed his car, but Charlie was in crutches already with a bad injury. So I got a taxi out to the scene, and there's Charlie spread eagle on the ground, <laughs> crutches everywhere, and they killed the cow stone dead in the middle of the road. And Dave rode off his car <laughs> at my stag in the same year. Jesus, they're so wild I, I days. It was wild days, and uh, but they left that bit out the end of it. And I, I only talked to Dave a while back about it. I said, and Charlie Redmond, and we had a great crack a while ago. I, I'm not surprised. And they laughed. Oh, just a joke. But the night seen the cow dead on the road, the car smashed, and I said, "Deja vu, Dave." The night the Leinster final, because I, I stayed looking for him, and I would have had my car when you first stayed looking for him. And my stag, the same thing happened. So listen, it was the Wild West back then, but it was off season. So I don't know where to start with that story. Number one, you've got you've burst in your best friend. You've number two, you have the stories at the end with the dead cow. <laughs> I think we should just gloss over that because, like I suppose, like Bernard says, the wild wild west in the eighties, and you can't necessarily, you know, retrospectively, you know, apply the rules we live by now to what was like then. So you know that was that. But let's focus on the on the Dave Sinnott one. Like I mean, the two misses; these lads are best mates. Bernard Flynn took no shit on the field. None of them did back then, Niall, because like I mean, this was a rough game back then. Like Peter Canavan would have given as good as he got. You had to, or else you're going to be blackguarded. And like these are two best friends, and Flynn bursts him, and the two misses is looking down. Like I mean, and then they don't speak to each other. They're meant to attend a function later on that night, and they don't. Like I mean, imagine this: and Flynn didn't care less; they'd won. You would wonder what the two wives were saying in the stands as they're sitting there, like just watching the two boys. I wonder, <laughs> did it get like so tense between them like that? It probably would have to, really, like, wouldn't it? You're going to defend your own, like, but no, it was. It was something that Bernard Flynn, I was just listening to the end of that interview, he, he kind of focused on that, defending himself and not letting anyone, you know, kind of bully him around the place because he was sort of a small man. And I think any sort of small players, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll respect that and they'll probably take a leaf out of his book and that, yeah. You, d- you stand up for yourself and you defend yourself but fair play to Dave Sinnott he got over it the next day didn't he and he got over it fairly quick yeah they went at it uh, the next day I don't know like I mean I suppose look you think of I suppose James McCartan probably would be a different example in that he was like built like a little bull Lee but I suppose like Bernard Flynn was one grew up in an area that, an era 
that it would full of hatchet men. He was a kind of a pretty boy, brilliant, stylish, two feet, which was unusual back then. And, you know, he, he would have got a lot of like he like the injuries he had. If you listen to that full interview again, just search for Bernard Flynn. Like, I mean, you're talking about a fella who was riddled with injuries from all the punishment that he got, uh, you know, throughout his career. Yeah, he was sort of a victim of his own success and that he was so good that a lot of, you know, teams just set up to try and break him down and, and you know, you put like a hatchet man on him, just get him injured, try to bully him, try to not let him, you know, play the, the football that he wants to play. So, respectively, he just had to, like, toughen up. But uh, I, I love that interview, you know, like, that's as old school as you get, you know. It's like, oh, you box him on the field, but you go for a pint after and it's all grand, you know. It's just old school GAA and you just have to love it. Yeah, of course, they'd be crying now. They'd be whinging and they'd be crying on social media. And, you know, listen, they're all soft now. Keep saying it. That's it. We're just uh, developing a softness and we need to get it out of us. Right, we'll leave it there um, and we'll come back in part two. All right, so welcome back to the best of the GA Hour. So before Dermot McNichol left school, this was my intro to the to the interview I did at the time. Before Dermot McNichol left school, he'd won three Ulster minor ch- titles and played in three All-Ireland minor finals, winning one as captain and playing in his first at the age of 14. He played in five McCrory Cup finals in a row, winning four of them. The first when he was just 14, a record that still stands. He was in school when he won a senior inter-county All-Star. He's the GEA's youngest ever All-Star and he was still in school when he represented Ireland in the Compromise Rules. Amazingly, he was only a sub. Despite only being 26, he was a sub in 1993 when Derry won the All-Ireland. He only came on um, at half-time. Here he is. It took him a long time to get over not starting and here he is talking about that. Well, I'll tell you now, I remember us going down to... Play uh, uh, this was maybe about two weeks before, three weeks before the the uh, All Ireland final, and we had a scratch match down and uh, the pitch down and uh, we went to camp and uh, down to Bally Castle. That's where it was. And uh, I remember Mark and Henry Danny, and I can tell you now, Henry was very very dizzy by the end of that match, very <laughs> very dizzy. And uh, I just I couldn't understand, I could not understand why he wasn't picked now at that stage. But listen. Uh, he had his reasons. It all worked out for Derry and yeah. themselves, and that, that's the most most important thing, you know. I I tell you something now. I, re, I I do regret is that I didn't challenge Eamon. I did not challenge Eamon at that particular time. I stood back and said, my my philosophy was, hold on a second, I'll go out into the training pitch and I'll show Eamon, I'll show who you know, what I can do, which I did, which I did. Uh, you know there were. Other players have, have ways of doing it. You know, there's players can ring him and players can get inside Eamon's head that way there. Yeah. I wasn't that type of player. I wasn't anyone that would be, you know, uh, ringing the manager and, and, and putting the case. No, no, definitely not. That's not the way I operated. To me, you do it out in the pitch. And maybe if I had a sat down with Eamon before the semi-final or final and had words with him and said, look, I have a case here, I have a case there. And I, that's what I encourage now. I encourage, and Mike, uh, coaching, I would encourage any player, if they're not happy, because of what I have, uh, because of what I, I you know, I, what I experienced with, you know, with, with, with that decision, I encourage all my players, if you have a problem, if you feel that, that this isn't right, you come to me because I will listen. And that's, that's something, uh, you know, that's something that's very, very important to, to, to uh, young players, especially young players. You know, I I, sh- I have no, um, to be honest, Colm, 
I should have known because I was 20, 26 or 27 years of age. But again, I just put it down to out on the pitch, do it out in the pitch, and Eamon will, will, um, will pick that up. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, I mean, you'd be forgiven if you had an ego at 26 after everything you'd done in the game up until that point, but you obviously didn't because you were just the, of the attitude, I'll go out and prove him wrong on the training pitch. Like, I mean, you, you accepted it, which is, you know, a testament to you. Yeah, that's, look, can I tell you something now, Colm? I had seven or eight hard years of accepting that, you know? Yeah. But I, I got over it, you know. At the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I firmly believe I should have started at that final. Not only me, there's a lot of people uh, in, the co- in the county would say that as well. There's no doubt in that. But, hey, listen, it's nothing to do with Eamon. Eamon's hands sometimes can be tied with, with selectors and things like that there, you know. I wouldn't have been the most popular with, uh, with some of the selectors and uh, because, not right, nothing that I have done, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, like club rivalries or something? Yeah, club rivalries maybe or something like that. Well, uh, uh, it's uh, it's not maybe the time to be getting into that, you know. Uh, okay. But, uh, there would have been. Uh, there's, listen, I, I have I have forgiven them. I've got, I'm actually forgive the people for it as well. To being honest, right? I had a, because if you hold back and 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 you get you know you get angry and you know that doesn't help at all. What's your memories of Dermot McNichol, Lee? Like, I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, a legend. You know these type of players like Joe Canning, that uh, David Clifford, that the whole country knows about while they're still 17, they're minors. Like, I mean, it doesn't have... Beano MacDonald, I would probably say, um, from a leash point of view. You just know about them, that these are special players coming through. Like, I mean, imagine Dermot McNichol. He's still in school, Lee, when he's an all-star. Yeah, it's absolutely, like, unheard of. I mean... You asked what my memories are of it. I, I, I wasn't born until 94, so I actually missed him as well. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you hear about Dermot McNichol pretty early on and the things that he's done. Uh, just astonishing, really. And for him to like to not start the final, you know, it, it must be like the one bittersweet thing about that season, even with Derry fans, because they all really loved him. Um, and you wanted to see him. And you, it's something about having a really uh a youngster who's like full of potential and you just want them to fulfill it so badly you know you're almost willing them to go and do it and then that's obviously the biggest stage that you can get so everyone would have wanted him to be uh starting that final so i wish i guess they're all just wishing that um, he did go and talk to the manager yeah well that's the thing like i mean first he didn't want to talk about it and even now all that time you know later he to- told me that it took him a-, a long time to get over it and like he was lucky that he got a half of a match like back in those days, usually subs, you know, they might get five minutes at the end. You just, you started your 15. Back when I started playing in the 90s, if you didn't make the first 15, you're writing yourself off. And if the team wins, you won't start the next day because the manager wouldn't really change the winning team. So in one way, he's lucky. He said Henry Downey was very dizzy after a challenge match, you know, before the final. And then it's, I think the point he makes about challenging the manager versus his, back what he thought back then was that I'll show him on the training field. My theory on that is that doesn't work. I find, say if you're a manager, Niall, right, and you've got a choice between two fellas, one lad that's going to come in and make your life hell, like this is a 50-50 call and, you know, there's not much in between the two players. One of them's just going to accept it and try his hardest for the match and the other lad's going to be torturing you. You know what I mean? Like, I might make my life a little bit easier and I always, always challenge the manager. 
Always ask for the reason. Why am I not? What do I need to do? What's the reason that you're not starting me? I did it with all of the managers and some of them will get very defensive and not want to have that conversation with you. And I think it's always important. Whether it, like it, Sometimes it doesn't do yourself any favours and other times it bumps you up further. You know, like I mean, mm. but always ask. Challenge them. Say, what do I need to do? Why, why are, what's he doing that I'm not doing? Yeah, well, it's definitely important that there is, you know, that you are communicating with your manager and that, like... At least if, if you ask him and you talk to him and you say, right, what am I doing wrong? At least you know then. And at yeah. least, and if, if he doesn't, if it's like you and he didn't tell you, you know, if a manager shuts down and won't really tell you, then, you know, you're going to be pissed off and you might, you might make a decision, right, I'm sick of this now. But at least you know, because there's nothing worse than being in limbo with a manager and you're kind of, maybe it's the kind of Dermot McNichol, he kind of, it was the honourable things, like he was kind of going on, there, like, and yeah. in fairness, he wasn't. He said he'll leave it to the pitch, but... Well, I do both. Doing hmm. both is the right way to yeah. do it. It's not like you stop trying. You keep trying. You keep doing it on the pitch. But you have to let the manager know that you're not happy about this. Definitely, yeah. And to just keep knocking on his door. And it's, it's, it's important as well that you just, you know, you get it off your chest because it's just going to be kind of weighing you down then if, if you don't talk to him. And it is important that players are able to talk to their managers because some lads, they'd be kind of reluctant, wouldn't they? And they kind of nearly be nearly scared to talk to the manager but like it's better off I'd say if you just chat to him and let him know how you feel about yeah, it no it definitely is so we all know hurling snobbery is a thing we have one uh, in the studio here sitting beside me but we never really heard a hurling person admit their superior- superiority over footballers like we knew this was going on you know whispers in pubs you know all this kind of thing when us football people are not around we know knew it existed but Niall DC was on the show pretty recently and he just spelt it all out for us you're kind of blowing the myth that footballers can't play hurling. It's usually the other way around. Any hurler can play football. Yeah, um, I suppose it's, <laughs> it's just the way we play in that. Like, um, I suppose once you have a bit of success, it's very easy to get footballers to come in and, and to do jobs that other lads don't want. Um, and it works for us in that like, we might have a few lads that get all the scores, like, uh, um, but other lads, the, the footballers of the engines and that, um, they do an awful lot of the work behind the scenes and they're happy to do it once the team is successful. So it, it's just kind of worked out for us. I don't know whether there was any master plan there, but um, it, it seems to be working for us. So, so what I'm reading from that is you bring in a, you bring in five or six footballers to do all the dog tackling and, and donkey work and then the hurlers kind of finish it off on the scoreboard. <laughs> so everyone has their own roles as well that's kind of works out of it but. yeah so I'm not going to go to, to Niall on this one because he's the hurling snob uh, Lee but I just ask you how hurt you are about this like we've spoken about this we won't spend too long on it how hurt you are to be described as yeah we get these lads in because they're flying fit and we get them in to yeah. do the donkey work and let the hurlers you know you know, do the, the, the get the glory I just have three words to sum it up um I knew it. I knew that's how they felt. I just knew it. <laughs> you know, I thought it was just paranoia with us football ones, but no, I knew that was how they always thought. And that's why I don't play the hurling <laughs> because they'll have me running around like a headless chicken. Well, well, more realistically, I'll probably be on the bench, but still out of principle, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, the most galling thing for football people is he has a good, very good theory. <laughs> that's the most annoying thing. He's, he dead def- right. <laughs> he's probably dead right. Okay, so Liam Griffin. Another legend we had on the show, um, this was during the early lockdown, uh, he spoke to us ahead of his Laker Gale as well. Um, we spoke about outside managers and we finished up talking a little bit about gladiators. 
I think that Davy did a great job for Wexford. I have to be honest and say he did a great job for Wexford. He got himself into the second division, which was absolutely vital to be playing at the top level. Your entry level is where you're going to wind up. That's it. I mean, if you want to talk about bringing guys into play second division hurling, they're going to struggle to get to the top because their entry level has keep them at a certain point. So we needed to be in the top field, and Davy did that. That was his biggest achievement, winning Leinster. But what I would say is that it's shameful that Wexford can't find a manager like. We had a great tradition like. So why shouldn't we be able to rear our own manager and yeah. then get out there and do it? Why not like? Why do we have to go for outside? And, uh, and that's no disrespect whatsoever to Davy. Now, they have a big entourage as well of people with them as well. But like, there's very few Wexford people. Or there are some Wexford people in it. So really, like, Davy has to trust his own panel. And I respect that and that's okay. But we need Wexford people heavily involved in that game so that we can look... Uh, there's no outsider going to get under the bed when we lose but that's the kind of feeling you have to have you have to feel the pain and I know that Davey probably feels the pain I'm not suggesting he doesn't but the real pain is when you have that purple and gold running through your veins or blue and white or whatever you have and uh, it has to hurt the management as well and I remember they brought in an outside manager of Wexford and there was appalling what happened he came in and they lost the match and Leicester semi-final and final and he never went into the dressing room afterwards he just went in disgust in other words you're losers, and that's it. And that was that was that, that. When I heard that, I thought, bloody hell, we're really degrading ourselves then doing things like that. And and, and and that's just my feeling. I think we should be able to bring our own people to manage hurling teams. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. football teams for that matter. I'm I'm laughing at the George O'Connor just to go back to it to one out of ten because you gave <laughs> I you gave us a speech before uh, Liam I'm not sure if you remember it was in the Montague Hotel and it was in the late nineties you'd won the All Ireland and over twenty yeah. years later I still remember it and I'll just let the listeners yeah. fill I'll fill them in on a little bit of the theme of your speech from my memory was the commitment level that's needed to win an All Ireland and you were up on the stage and you were very funny and you gave a great speech and you you ended up telling us about this athlete that trained every day, maybe sometimes twice a day, watch what they ate. And you laid out this this week of commitment for this athlete and you made us guess what sport was this athlete playing. So I can't re- think, I remember thinking it was a boxer or whatever it was anyways. And it was a contestant on Gladiators. And you said, fucking Gladiators, lads. He said, if, if, <laughs> if that's what they're doing, what do you think you need to do to win an All-Ireland? And I just thought it was brilliant. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, no, I remember that now. Yeah, I do remember it. Yeah, I do, I do, I do. Because uh, I was reading this thinking, holy shit, this is going on. <laughs> you know, and uh, we were talking about two laps of the field and then we're all tired. I'll never forget that interview he did with us in the Montague Hotel that time. Like, I mean, the way he, the way he teed it up and there's not many speeches that you'd remember and all that kind of thing. Like, I remember even Brian Cody spoke to us before an All-Ireland Club final in the dressing room. And, like, I don't really remember what he's saying. He was saying, you know, get to the ball first. You know, generic stuff. Mm. But Liam Griffin was charismatic, hilarious at times, had a great message. And I just remember thinking, Jesus, this lad's just fantastic. And, you know, he was an All-Ireland winner, but so was Brian Cody. You know, this kind of way. It just was very memorable. And he's telling us, He's eating three times a day. He's got sports psychologists. He's got, uh, you know, he's waking up in the middle of the night to go and do a training session. Now, you tell me what sport that is. Fucking gladiators. (laughs) It was excellent because he's spelling out to us. I remember like (coughs) Huey Emerson, I was there. Are you prepared to do that, Huey? You know, and we're all like, wow, yeah, we are. (laughs) And uh, like, I just remember that. And I think he finally remembered it after me saying, you know, describing it to him. But he probably didn't really... You know, he wouldn't have probably thought too no. much of it, but it's interesting the impact that had, you know, even on me that I remembered it all this time later. Yeah, but that's just Liam Griffin all over, isn't it? Like, and 
Like I remember watching his Laker Gale and he was talking about before every every morning he got up, he'd go for a long walk on the beach and he'd think you know, he'd think what he's going to say to the players that night and how he's going to kind of frame it in a way like that he did with G that day and just everything he did seemed to be memorable. Like do you remember the story of the day of the Leinster final that year in ninety six he got walked out. him out of the border like yeah. in, in Wicklow and like that's just like interview, I interviewed him before, and he's just—he's so passionate, isn't That's he? Like, it. and he, I'd say it's never—it's never off his mind. Like, you know, when he was the manager of Wexford, especially, like, just what I'm going to do, and he'd do Anton really for the team, and like it was funny at the start, they didn't really—they kind of thought he was going on as if, geez, they didn't—they don't know what to make of me, like, but like when he's going on like that, you couldn't—you couldn't not like him for long, like, you know, you just—he yeah. grow on you, like. There, there's nothing. I don't think there's any subject in GEA Liam Griffin can talk about and passionate is the one word that springs to mind immediately like like it's infectious the way he talks about um, I'd say about most things he's just that type of character but especially anything GEA related it's just like Jesus yeah you're right Lee I'm right behind <laughs> yeah. you <laughs> yeah I mean a lot of people are you know they've got the right ideas but they just can't deliver it in the same way and it just it's so important actually I mean uh, you hang on to his every word. You know there's going to be a good point at the end of it, and you just want to fight for him in the end, and and that makes all the difference in the end. It's just, it's just fantastic. Yeah, no, he definitely is. So I'm including this last clip um, to finish up part two. This is a clip that Cork fans <laughs> enjoyed an awful lot. So like, I mean, the one thing about doing preview shows, right? Well, we'll, we'll play the clip first. It was a preview show ahead of the All Ireland semi final, and here's myself and Brian Carroll with a bit of a theory about Jack O'Connor. We were talking on Monday about uh, Jack O'Connor and how the crowd love him and everything now, but like he's very predictable and he ends up nearly all the time coming in the end line with no angle to shoot at. Mm. You'd imagine Kilkenny will be talking about this the whole time. Like, I mean, is he a danger running in that end line? You know, what does he need to do there, Brian? To like, does he does he need to cut in the field and come on his other side? Like, he tried to smash a ball overhead from yeah. the from the end line. Yeah, and like, I mean, it's all right. The crowd get up on their feet and like if he does that a few times they go oh god this lad's no end product you know like yeah. he has scored a couple of goals mm. but I think Kilkenny will defend that I don't think that would scare Kilkenny all that much No and they'll they'll get back in numbers as well like yeah. they're, they're brilliant at, at, at manning that square and, and just making sure that they don't get in there and another thing there's no doubt about he'll be folded up <laughs> like no but seriously like the last they leech in you know he's caused like a couple of games ago he's, he's caused Kilkenny a lot of problems you know folded up in the first half and like Jackie Turtle was afraid to do a Shane McCallan either I'm not saying it's dirty and people said oh you know what are you saying it is I'm saying they do what needs to take to win do you know what I mean if Jack O'Connor's going to be buzzing around this that place and, and he leaves himself wide open he's going to be put a stop to so he'll like, go around Tommy Walsh on the outside come a little lane line and Parik Walsh will come across and he'll be stuck into Hill 16 ex- exactly that's my point and like he's doing exactly what any good full back line or any good half back line are going to do that's, th- that's the edge so I was getting absolutely slated by Cork fans on this. In my defence, if Adrian Mullen hadn't scored that goal at the very end of the game, Jack O'Connor had a, didn't have a good game at all. Jack O'Connor went wing forward in extra time and he cleaned up. He had a brilliant game. And like, I mean, this clip kept getting shared about me and Brian saying he was going to be stuck into Hill 16 and everything like that. But like, at the end of the day, people take, number one, they take predictions way too seriously. Like, they could fall out with a pundit for not tipping their team. Number two, you get something wrong in a preview show it's used as a stick to beat you with. Whereas my theory, if I, if I got everything right in a preview show, I'd be a millionaire. Like preview shows are not like review shows. Review shows are easy compared to preview shows. Preview shows is about coming up with a theory, having some ideas on tactics that people listening, you know, can look out for. 
um, putting your neck on the line, saying you think this might happen. And, you know, like <laughs> you're not always going to get it right. And like, I mean, we didn't get it right on Jack O'Connor. I still stand by if a fella's running in on the headline consistently, bury him into the bloody hill 16. I'm surprised Kilkenny didn't do it. But anyways, listen, we, I only played that because Cork fans would enjoy it. Would enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I remember logging on to, I think it was the GR Twitter the next day and it was uh, of that match. And I was like, there's people commenting here and they're sharing this tweet from about three weeks ago. What's going on? <laughs> but the Cork boys, in fairness, they didn't, uh, they didn't let you away with no, it. No, <laughs> no. It's still being kind of thrown back at me. And people frame it as in, Jesus, that Parkinson hasn't a clue. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the worst thing I've ever... Like, I've said way more stupid stuff than that down through the last five and a half years. But anyways, I would say that was one of the more sensible kind of things I might, have, I might have said on the show. But anyways, we'll leave it there for part two and we'll be back in a second. All right, so welcome back to part three of the best of 2021 on the GER. So Niall Morgan... Um, he won his he won his first All Star obviously a few weeks ago, and massively deserved. Um, he spoke to us the week after Tyrone won the All Ireland, and I was mad to talk to him about his kickouts. Here he is explaining why he kicked it out so so long in both the semi final and the final. Yeah, well, like we've been probably known to be you know a short kickout team over the last number of years, and uh, teams are are pressing us, and pressing us hard, and I suppose with I can kick the ball quite far, so it was more a case of getting the ball over the top of as many men as possible, and like we got absolutely hammered on the the short kick out against Kerry down in Killarney, and uh, in the semi final we went long a lot, and again, like contrary to belief, like uh, against Kerry I probably was striking the ball a lot better, and against Mayo, and it was just we weren't getting the numbers to the break as quick, and you know. The the analysts after the match, I suppose, tore us to shreds and said that the kick out malfunctioned. But you know, we played the ball in Kerry's half, and it was hard for them to keep pressing up, get back, keep pressing up, get back. And um, whereas you know, if we had a kept trying to go short, you know, and as you say, you might have won a kick out, but next you know it's turned over and it's a point or it's a goal, and uh, people don't really look at that side of things. And against Kerry, we had probably we probably lost a lot of our long kickouts and. Uh, but they didn't actually score that much off them uh, because they, they had to break so many of us down. And against Mayo, it was probably the same idea. They squeezed us last year in the league game in the second half in particular, and they got a lot of joy out of it. And they, they probably thought of doing the same again, but uh, we, we had worked in getting numbers around the break this time and, and it worked out for us. And like we, we probably lost a number of kickouts against Mayo as well. But you know, whenever you have midfielders like Con and Brand who can catch or flick on or you know whenever the communication's good it definitely helps like I mean can you see this being a, a decent shift away from these short kickouts now because like they had become so like I don't know in fashion that every team was doing them you, they could have a six foot six midfielder and they're still going short most of the time and the whole idea was that possession is more important than 50-50 and it's like they never thought that right possession at full back line is still a very very dangerous possession whereas if you give it 50-50 if you do win that possession, it is less likely you'll gain possession. But if you do win it, look at the chance you have in front of you. Like you say, Kennedy or Khan with a flick down. And if someone runs onto that flick down, you know, you, you, you're bearing down on goals. Yeah, I think I think it has to be mixed up. Like against, that's probably the biggest difference in Kerry and Mayo game that we, we mixed it up and we went short at times. And like if you keep pumping the ball long, the other team's just going to sit back and they're going to get numbers to the break as well and they're yeah. going to constantly gamble. So if, if you can mix it up and, you know, go short now and again, which keeps them 
you know, pressed up. But like the like we we would have tended to nearly try to force the short away, and we've got caught in a number of occasions with with that. And whereas I say, if you if you go long and you're landing the ball in opposition's half, and you know, even if they win it, they've they've maybe ten of your players to get through, and they have to you know work hard to to get their score. And the, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. If you if you're offering up easy scores and it's easy for the odd team to target a, a specific player in a team and nearly leave him free, and it's hard for you to, to turn turn the kick out away. Like if 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 the odd team fancy uh, a player to get turned over, uh, we have done the throne a number of occasions where we nearly pick a player and, and tempt the keeper into kicking it to him because we we know we we'll have a good chance at, at taking the ball off him. Yeah. Uh, whereas whenever you're going long, is it, it might be a fifty fifty, but this is the first time thrones and it. I can never remember it anyway. I got two boys at six foot five standing midfield, and why wouldn't you use them? And then you've got Connor there at eleven as well. You've got Matty whenever he comes out, and you've got a couple of boys that are actually deceivingly good in the air. Like Petey Hart's brilliant in the air, and, and like he mightn't be the tallest, but he usually gets a mismatch because the team's so focused on the the bigger boys. So the, there could be a shift, but it depends on on the keeper's abilities and qualities as well. Like Danny Gall have been using it the last couple of years. Uh, Monaghan have been using it. Like with Rory, and it just I suppose it depends on how far you keep kick the ball and how accurate he is in the shorts as well. So, Lee, without ruining the best of, which is more of an entertaining show on boring kick out <laughs> kick out analysis, um, I'm hoping that Niall Morgan has transformed, you know, this kind of over obsession with forcing the short one, um, even though the other team has a big press on. When the other team has a big press on, they literally want you to go short. They're set up to try and take it off you when you go short. Don't force that short. You go long on that occasion and you're taking eight of their players out and that's when you should be going long. And you know you're going long and you need to get players onto that breaking ball. And it makes so much more sense. And there's nothing more heartbreaking on a field than seeing a goalkeeper running around, looking either side. The other team has a press on and they're looking for the short one. And it's almost like this point blank refusal that we can't give a 50-50 out there. I'd rather put my corner back in the shit, you know, when I tap it to him and he gets surrounded, you know, rather than play it 50-50. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the short kick out in that sense was, it was sort of born out of, you know, Aaron on the side of caution, that possession is everything. Why would you, when you have possession, would you make it a 50-50 when you could get it to someone who's definitely in your own team? Um, but now with the high press and everything, and people have it sussed out at this stage, it is more detrimental than it is actually standing until a 50-50. And what it's done is it forced Jerome to actually look at their midfield and go and find, you know, and rediscover nearly high-fetching yeah. midfielders, big tall fellas, Conkle Patrick, you know, Brian Kennedy. Um, and it was a revelation in the end. You know, it was such an outlet for Jerome and one of the big, big factors this season and why they were so successful. Yeah, no, it definitely was. Like, I mean, I don't think there's any kind of doubt that cornerbacks won't be thanking the goalkeeper for tapping it to them, you know, with all that kind of... I think I was saying on the show here, Niall, just to move off that point, this became fashionable when teams used to drop off kickouts and they'd go back, you know, these really defensive teams, they'd give up the kickout. So mm. then you had corner, you'd had goalkeepers just tapping it to the cornerback unopposed. And then that short kickout to the cornerback became a thing. Then teams moved back up and the press is on. And now goalkeepers just remained in that mindset. You know, that one's on to the cornerback. It's not on. Mm. Stop doing it. You know, get, get it out good and long. And I think maybe in hurling, maybe that might, there can be, it's heading towards an over-focus on that, you know, nice short one when you see teams like Limerick. And we saw it down in, in the league against Cork in the Gaelic grounds where they're almost teasing Cork. Cork were putting nearly all their puck out short. 
and Limerick fairly put manners on them. You suppose the answer here is that you want a ver- for me, you want a variety. And if you see too much pressure on your backs, get it down the field. And hurling especially, you can nearly get it to the bloody other end of the field. Yeah, exactly. The the most the most important thing is that you have the variety and that the team isn't constantly you know, doing the same yeah, thing. They're not, yeah. they're not able to kind of reach and they don't know where it's going to go every single time. Like so, it is like it's a you know Tipperary did it a few times the last few years just bombing the ball and nearly it because goalies can hit it so far now. Just take Ender Rowland and Leash, he can bomb it nearly to the far square. Like and it it put la- it puts lads under pressure straight away. Like so, and it's the same in the football the way it works for Tyrone. Like if you can. If you can get a team under pressure, there's no risk as well. So why wouldn't you? Yeah, no, exactly. So speaking of Tyrone, we were curious about the dynamic between Fergal Logan and Brian Dewar on the show because they're pretty kind of unassuming, quiet, quieter kind of fellas with no kind of, you know, no headlines um, out of them. Brendan Devenny and Aaron Kernan were doing some very good analysis on that. I've heard a few things over that Logan, maybe he's the, he's trying to pacify and he'll try and keep everyone right where Dewar it's probably a bit like he was as a player you know yeah. he's serious he means business and very very to the point Logan like, would break up a fight and yeah. Dewar would get into the, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> you, you want to break up with your woman you'll call Dewar if you want to get her back you'll ring Logan <laughs> <laughs> yeah what do you what's your take on the, the two boys uh, Brenda they're, they're a strange I know, you've called it right there. listen I, I, I was talking to Logan last night put him up a good chat him on the phone he's, he's top fella uh, a script there uh, with a boy up in uh, Strabane one time. I, I, I could have been in the handcuffs, but uh, the big dog Logan wheeled <laughs> in. Here. I'll tell you what, you would have seen whatever, but the, 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 I've never seen him in the dressing room. Obviously, you'd see in the courtroom. He landed in. Hey, I was looking at a wee bit of baller. Next thing, all was sorted, you know. So, uh, listen, I'll always be in his debt. So, he rang up last night. So, he's in diamonds a lot in that, and he, he's, he's an absolute gent. And, um, you know, that little nonsense was running in the background there. Listen, that's not his style or, or do her style. You know, all this crap about the lads and the issues and was hanging over him. You can tell from the way he's straight down the barrel, he treats everything very seriously, very honest. I, I think he's one of those guys, I think what he's doing, unlike in the heart there, he's let the players kind of be in charge of the team. He's probably involved them in the tactics and, and has asked them to stand up and, and be the men and, and let them take control of the situations. And you can see a massive togetherness. And there's a couple of things I've seen McCurry done this year, for example, where a couple of years ago, he would have taken on an awkward shot early in the game. You can just see him dovetail back and wait and wait. And even the last day of Sullivan was getting the better of him. Late on in the game, when it matters, he comes in the loop for a couple of kicks. And all those wee small things are, are, are the difference, you know, uh, so listen, fair play them. They deserve what they've got. So that's it. I don't think we needed any more explanation, Lee, unless you've any more insight uh, being a Tyrone man that if you want to break up with your missus, you talk to Dewar. And if you want to get back with your missus, you talk to Logan. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty perfectly. You know, <laughs> they're just the, the yin and yang dynamic duo. They've, they've got it all going. And listen, I whatever they tell me to do, I'd follow them to the to the hills But after what they've done for Tyrone this year. So whatever they're doing, keep it that way. It's working. Yeah, I think you probably do need a dynamic. I don't think they're good cup, bad cup necessarily. But I think Doer is that kind of intense winner who do anything, you know, and you go to any lengths and get the lads primed for it. Whereas Logan is a more more of a peacemaker. As such, I think Logan handled the whole COVID thing. I was very critical of them on the on the show, but they handled it very well. You know, like, I mean, the way Logan spoke about it. And I actually, I know Logan was pissed off with me for the way I uh, spoke about it on the show. I wouldn't take any of it back, but I met him recently at uh, Brendan Devaney 
Brendan Venny's charity ball up in Letterkenny. He was a total gentleman. We didn't bring up that subject, but I, we have a mutual friend who I know he was he was kind of pissed off. So a little bit concerned about meeting him. But Logan, like I mean, even Brendan's story there, like I mean, which you know we won't analyse too much. But he's a t- total gentleman, Fergal Logan. Un- unusual for a Tyrone man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all the Tyrone lads I've met now, they've been uh, lunatics. Yeah, like Lee Cox, <laughs> <laughs> <Complete> <laughs> lunatic. But I uh, know there's no point in me talking about those lads because. Uh, Aaron Kernan summed it up better than anyone could. If you want to break up with your missus, you go to one lad. If you want to get back with her, you go to the other. I played with Tyrone, funnily enough, in New York um, for two years. So I met a lot of Tyrone people. Um, none of them were like Fergal Logan, <laughs> I have to say. None of the ones I met um, in New York. Anyways, Davy Fitzgerald um, was on the show earlier on in the year. Last year, in the lead up to the winter uh, championship, the November championship. Davy was accused of pulling a fast one with Wexford. It was the start of the Wexford split season where they played the hurling first and then they played the football afterwards. And of course, all the accusations were around Davy setting this up to have his hurlers um, back training for the winter while most other counties were playing one week on, one week off. So I remember talking uh, to Davy about this. It didn't work out quite like uh, people thought for Davy. No, it was actually nothing to do with that whatsoever. Um, if you look at Wexford's situation, right, all my guys, the club championship in Wexford was actually really, really good. It was top draw, right? Um, the lads, like, one of the things, and i just say it is, I thought that definitely, I thought the county would happen before the club because I said, logically, it's easier to manage a group of 30 or 40 people in one county rather than manage every club team, right? So probably June or July, we were in unbelievable shape and did a great club championship. So that ended, I think, on the end of August, start of September. And we were getting back. We actually went back, I think, on the, Ju- the 14th of September. But what I didn't probably take into account as much was every single guy bar one on our panel plays football, so they'll be training three nights a week with the football after that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to... I was not going to stop them doing what they wanted to do was I very worried that they'd, they'd train with me on a Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday and they'd be with their club Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday? I was. Yeah. I was. So, and so people what? thought we were trying to pull a... There was no fast one column. What it was, and this to tell you the truth, was the hurling clubs got a chance to hurl them one week after another, right? And you just take it. If you were playing hurling football, hurling football, well, then you might have certain clubs gaining a massive advantage that that mightn't have played, taken football serious or didn't play it serious whereas other clubs would have whereas everyone had a level playing field and the quality of the hurling was unreal because it was week after week and then for the football it was the exact same level yeah. playing field and practicing your football week after week as well so I think the county board tried to do the right thing did David Fitz as much as people were saying have a say in it not one bit did I have a say in it and trust me it didn't stand to Wexford as good as people thought it might have yeah, I saw Henry Shefflin said after the Wexford game that Wexford looked overcoached. Um, like, I mean, the opposite is probably true if you didn't have them in the lead up to the championship. Yeah, like you, um, you have your homework done on that. I was probably taken back a bit by Henry. He didn't do his homework. And when you're making comments, I think it's very important to do your homework. Um, I don't think he had a clue what he was talking about. And I'd have massive respect for him as a person. But I was very disappointed in that. They weren't overcoached. Um, that's for definite. I didn't get enough of what I wanted to get done when I'm done. But I, I, I tried to understand the club scene as much as I could. And um, 
you know what, them lads are a great bunch, the Wexford boys, they'll give you everything, but they won't let down, they'll try and keep everybody happy. Um, they don't want to let down their clubs either, and that's very important. Yeah, so I don't think Davey understood that Wexford is a massive jewel county and all his players will be going off playing football. I don't think he genuinely thought about that. You know, like, I mean, and that's what, that's what happened. Um, you know, and then, like, I mean, it was funny listening to him on Henry. He was pissed off with what Henry said to Thierry. In Henry's defence, probably wasn't the most crazy observation in the world. Wexford looked like, you know, I wouldn't have thought it was terrible analysis, but Davey, you know, he doesn't like that kind of uh, thing. And then you're just thinking, you know, Henry just beat him to the job and maybe like, Henry or Davey might have been, you know, thinking about maybe his opinion of Henry might have gone down a little bit after that and then he got beaten to the Galway job by him. Yeah, a bit of a double whammy for Davey, but yeah, I was surprised that he was... That a lad that's as meticulous as Davy kind of left out that and kind of forgot about that. And it genuinely it sounded like he it genuinely sounded like he didn't really realise that. Yeah, yeah, which is mad really, the amount he puts into it, like, but uh no, sure just it just didn't work out for them in the end that year. And whether Henry like they did they did kind of look overcoached. That was the way that you know they played. They kind of looked like kind of jaded and a bit tired, but maybe as Davy said as well, they just you know, they weren't sharp at all. Like, you know, it's there's probably not much of a difference between the two, even though yeah. they're the complete opposite. I, well, I think they weren't, they weren't, uh, probably weren't that sharp. I don't think they're overtrained, overcoached. I just think if you play the same way for two years, teams analyse it and figure mm. it out. And now they, like, hurlers never really followed off the ball runs because other teams never really made them. Now you have the likes of John McGrath, Bubbles, Jamie Cannon, and these lads who di- probably didn't track them in Croke Park in that semi-final as much as they showed now they're primed for it you know teams did, I think just maybe tactically they're probably figured out a little bit more and I think that's what uh, Wexford's um, problem problem is anyways we know the all Ireland hurling semi-final this is our last one um, of the year um, uh, we know the all Ireland hurling final was delayed I was stuck in it on the motorway as the bales of farming <laughs> some farmer led his bales of hay hit one of the bridges and fall all over the over the road I was actually going to turn back I didn't think it was, there was no way we were going to make the game but the game was put back um, anyways we spoke about the match on Monday obviously Limerick beat Waterford first or beat Waterford uh, well in that semi-final but Damien Hayes also did some fast, fantastic analysis on bales of hay an expert in straw bales <laughs> signage right? is your forte is it <laughs> yeah yeah I'd be more I, we, we as a family would be more into square bales of hay because we'd love hardship <laughs> right, but we we um I I thought there was a rule uh within that you couldn't go three rows high, right? As in to to stack them three three rows high. I just I thought that, but as I said, I'm not an expert. I don't want to start speaking about uh, stacking of of, of um bales, but ah, oh, lads, it must be a pure misfortune. Uh, and all I'll say is right, and any anyone that's a farmer and. Their father is the is the is the main man and the father's son, right? Well, I hope it was the father that was driving the track <laughs> and not the father's son, because it, it, and you and and every farmer's young and load him on about because or he didn't go to load and he loaded the bales himself and he forgot about the three rows higher or or whatever. But uh, actually, it was just a pure misfortune. Like you know, she couldn't. You wouldn't write it. Come here. Would you mind telling me why you're still on the on the square bales instead of the the round ones? Oh, there's nothing that I'd say. Square bale of hay is terribly valuable. Um, very, very, very handy. Um, What's the difference? Uh, column. You, can throw, uh, you can throw a square bale of hay into a van or a car, and so you can, and, and you know, for a couple of calves or a couple of yos there to have lambs. Oh, the square bale is terribly valuable. Very, very valuable. Right, and it's just a, it's just a handiness 
Yes, the square. This is this is hilarious. This is <laughs> yeah, the handiness of the the handiness of a square bale of hay is very handy for if you're feeding calves or if you have yours dropping. So there's and in a round bale, maybe unknown yourself. Just they say there's ten square bales in a round bale. If just you mightn't have known that, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot more work to it and a lot more hardship to it. But square bales of hay are terribly handy, so they are, and they can last a lot longer. But it's mainly for calves and yours and that. So you're the farmer here, uh, Niall. What was uh, Damien's analysis like? Are you st- are you round bale uh, family or are you uh, square bale? We'd have round bales actually this year. We'd usually have the silage pit, but it was round bales for the first time this year. And uh, I think da- Damien was fairly spot on with it now, in fairness. Very uh, handy to throw in the boot of a car. <laughs> very handy to throw in the boot <laughs> of a car and throw in the van, which uh, bring the bale for a drive, which... Uh, uh, there's no or for yours that are lambing. Yours that are lambing. There's no better man to talk about now than uh, Damien, and I think... It's a fitting way to, to nearly bring it all to a close, isn't what, it, Willie? What about his theory? <laughs> it is a fitting way, but maybe I'm pushing it out too far. What about his theory on not being able to stack them three high? Is he right on that? Is there a, gener- is it, is there a general you know, rule of thumb for stacking straw bales? Yeah, well, I suppose there must be if you're driving like on main roads and, and stuff like that. Like I'm kind of down the country, so you wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't... You wouldn't be on a motorway. You wouldn't be on a motorway. You, you shouldn't be, be on, on a motorway. They're on the back no. of a lorry, I suppose, rather. You wouldn't see them, like, it's not something you'd see too often as no. bales on a motorway, but probably shouldn't be there. But, uh, no, I think uh, D- Damien's fairly spot on. He knows his bales. He certainly, he certainly does. Right, listen, that's all we've time for. I hope you have a brilliant new year. And that's me signing off um, from the GER. So you can keep your eye on my Twitter account, to see what I have planning next. So thanks to everybody in Sports Show, um, everybody in production, all the pundits that worked on the show and everyone I've worked with here for the last five and a half years. It's been absolutely fantastic. And, well, it's kind of like every last day. I hope I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) We'll talk to you all again. Good luck. No such thing as a media ban. We don't have a media ban. Ah, you do? No, we don't. A donkey eat and a donkey eat a palace. (laughs) There's nothing else to eat. He was massive. <laughs> Legs, ass, built. But I burst out laughing watching <laughs> <laughs>